None of us came from nowhere. No human has ever been created in a vacuum. Even in the mystical creation stories from around the world, you never hear, at first there was nothing. And then there was Bob. Bob. No, humans are always made or grown or animated by something. And the something in our life, the great commonality, is for better or worse, we were brought into existence by our biological parents. This whole thing, your thing, your life, your living, right now, started off in one of the craziest cosmic crapshoots ever. 40 to 150 million purpose-bred egg-hunting sperm get set off all at once in a Kentucky Derby death race. Make a long and difficult journey to the cervix, hit the fallopian tube fork in the road, and somehow rock, paper, scissors decide, you go this way, I go that way. Then get to the egg, which might as well be the death star. Only the strong will survive. Force fields up. One sperm makes it through, fertilizes the egg, which is like the sperm moving into his new girlfriend's house and they can't decide whose furniture to keep, so they just mix and match and make some new DNA. And then nine months later... Welcome to life, bitch. Your dad's a deadbeat and your mom's a meth head. Good luck. This is the craziest part to me. Your biological parents could be dumb as rocks and still encoded in them is the profound, innate knowledge to create life. Your bio mom, love her or hate her, was a portal to existence and it was Genesis in there and you got summarily kicked out of the garden with no apples eaten. We all have parents. They are our first protectors, our first villains, and it's perfectly plausible, or in my case, absolutely assured, that we can exist because of decisions that weren't even consciously made. And still, it is our origin, and it's part of our story. You're here now, human. And if you want to live consciously awake, your job here is to live an examined life and to make sense of your story. If you're stuck, therapists can help with this. Our guest today is Alyssa Altman. This interview was recorded two years ago when her book Motherland was coming out. But Alyssa is a master storyteller, and her story is timeless. The story of having, let's say, difficult parent. This kind of storytelling, making sense of the chaos and unfairness of life, and sharing our stories with others is how we grow. It's how we make sense of it all, and it's how we learn to be human. Enjoy this episode we've called Oh Mother with Alyssa Altman. I guess before I ask the the traditional starting question, yeah. can we tell the story about how you ended up here? Because I think it's kind of funny. Sure. You first. <laughs> okay. So Alyssa is a patron of mine, and she wrote to me to say, hey, you know, I'm also a great author. <laughs> I don't know. I don't what, know that I said great. I don't know great. what you said. You I said, didn't I'm say also great. an interesting human I think you should have on the program, <laughs> essentially. I said, okay, I'll read your book, but this is a meritocracy, or what did I say? You said something like that. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't just put you in because you're a patron. And I thought, oh God, he's yeah. going to think that God knows what he's going to think, you know. And you're a great writer. Thank you. I feel like you could probably write about anything and make it interesting. Well, thank you. I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyone who reads, I've only read Motherland, so I can't attest to your other books, but you read the first page and you get it. Thank you. I started out life as a food writer. My first memoir was a sort of bona fide food memoir, and there were recipes in it because the publisher wanted recipes in it. It was all about finding love really for the first time in a really long time and changing the way that I think about 
sustenance and nurturing and the table. And it was very table focused because I'd gone to cooking school and I had done all this food stuff. And over the years, I've realized that everything that I write is about sustenance and nurturing, whether it's about the table or not, even here with Motherland. Are you classically trained? Did you go to school for English? I, I did go to school for my degree in English from BU. Got it. I thought you meant classically trained in cooking, and I did go to cooking school. Oh, you did too? I did, yeah. It was fine. I didn't love it, and it was not like a formal thing, but I did learn how to make a good sauce and a good roast chicken and feed the people I love, and it's all good. But yeah. I never wanted to be a chef. Never. No. Understandable. No, no, yeah. no. Who wants to do that? A lot of work, not a lot of pay. That's right. Yeah. Right, right, right. God bless the chefs. So, you know where I'm going to go. Yes, I, I think I might. <laughs> Alyssa, who are you? Who am I? I'm a woman who tries to take care of my senior mother, and I'm a in love with my wife, and I'm a, a writer and a cook and a caregiver and an editor, and, um, you know, I just put one foot in front of the other every day, like all of us. Um, writing is the thing that keeps me moving forward uh, and creating keeps me moving forward every day. Um, you know, I would like to think I'm a good friend, a patron of makers of art such as yourself. <laughs> it's complicated. It's a complicated question. Now that we got the nervousness out of the question, <laughs> I'm going to ask you again. Okay. Alyssa, who are you? Who am I? I'm a writer. That's what I am. That's who I am. That's what I am. First and foremost, professionally, I'm a creator. That's what I do. I write about food. I write about love. I write about addiction and trying to heal myself and the people in my life. That's what I do. That's what it all seems to come down to. This book, Motherland, which is the one I read, does really highlight a lot of what you were having to heal from. And also covers about how you got into food. But just for the listener who doesn't know these things, could you kind of tell us, I guess I would say how I would put it is where your journey started. So I would put it at being a little kid with a handful of a mom who you, I think it really just is apparently ended up with more responsibility than any little kid should have. Right. You know. Right. Well, I think that the best place to start is to say that my mother did not know she was pregnant for six months. And there, are, uh, when I learned that, when I found that out, and it had been sort of an apocryphal thing. I had always assumed that it, it had been an apocryphal story told by my father's side of the family, who didn't really have a huge amount of love for my mom. And when I was writing the book, I did a lot of digging. And in fact, my mother did not know that she was pregnant with me for six months. And the reason why she didn't was because she had been anorexic um, most of her life and body dysmorphic and... When a woman is that thin, odds are they have lost their period. When she became pregnant and was no longer gay, it, it just was... Nothing changed. She, nothing changed. It was like it was just an average day in, in, in her life. My mother is a... She's 84 years old. She lives in New York City alone. She has a caregiver a couple of days a week. She's a former television singer, former model, sort of hyper-heterosexual glam queen, over-the-top, made up to the hilt every day, loathes food, very, very fearful of food, literally fearful of the table and the kitchen. So when I arrived three months after she discovered she was pregnant, our lives together began 
from a place of uh, lack, from a place of lack of nurturing and lack of sustenance. She didn't know she was supposed to feed me the amount of foods that she was supposed to feed me. And that lack sort of defined our relationship very early on. I spent a lot of time trying to be the person that she wanted me to be. My mom suffers from NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder. Diagnosed? Diagnosed. Wow. The entire section of the DSM, never medicated for it, probably some bipolar. My mother has lived her life from a place of need and desire and want. And then when you bring a kid into a situation like that, things I think can get very, very complicated. And they did for years until I was at the place where I was able to say no to her, which was around 12, 13 years old. I was sort of her mini-me. She wanted me to be her mini-me. She dressed me the way she dressed herself. An accessory. I was an accessory. That's exactly right. You're an object. I was a prop. Yeah. And if you look at pictures of us early on, she's holding me like a prop, like a doll, and we're not making eye contact. That's who we were. I think there was love there, and there certainly still is love there, but it's a complicated, complex love. And I think that many women, many people have those kinds of relationships with their parents. Complex, challenging, difficult, filled with love, but the love is hard. Yeah. Well, I certainly wouldn't know anything about mommy issues. I wouldn't. I, at all. I wouldn't. Th- I wasn't going to go down that road, Sam, you know. <laughs> yeah. And my, but, my mom is not a clinically diagnosed NPD, but she is kind of a larger than life person, you know, personality and takes up the whole room almost, you know? So I really related a lot to what you were talking about where it almost felt like there wasn't room for you. It's obviously way different. I mean, I can only imagine what it's like to, especially these days where narcissist is such a kind of overly thrown out word, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) I, I imagine it would be something similar to when somebody with actual OCD here, somebody go, oh, I have so much OCD. Right. You know, right. Exactly. No, you don't. Right. You don't know what we're talking about here. Right. When did you start to realize when you finally were old enough to say no, like, no, I don't want to wear that. Right. Would be a good example. Yeah. Yeah. What was that, I guess, psychological awakening like? Because it's so young. You said 13. I was about 12 or 13. 12 or 13. So what what were you actually realizing as a 13-year-old? Because your whole experience tells you that if you're raised in that, then this is supposed to be normal. So how did you actually come through into that period? If you can, I think that I was able to somehow, and I don't know how and I don't know why, I was able to step back from my relationship with my mother. Even as a child, I was a chronic journaler. Uh, and didn't have any siblings, and I poured everything that I felt, everything that uh, I was going through into my journals at the youngest, youngest of ages. And at a certain point, when you're about 11, 12, 13, whether you're a boy or a girl, you begin to step back and see your parents for who they really are, for who and what they really are. This was in the 1970s. So this was 13. I would have been 19. It would have been 1976. And the world was crazy in 1976. I grew up in a suburb of New York City. So it was fairly well to do. There was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of booze. There was a lot of partying. 
a lot of people in and out of each other's homes. I was a quiet kid. And I remember taking sort of a giant step back and looking at her from as objective a standpoint as I could as her daughter and thinking, my mother is not like the other mothers. She is, she's as different as different could be. This was also the time when the Waltons were on television. And, tele, you know, I don't even know if you remember them. You probably don't. Um, <laughs> no, they pre- totally predated you. But these were television shows about these big families that there was mom and there was grandma and everybody got along and everybody everything was wonderful. I remember thinking, she's not like that and we're not like that. And this is a complicated, this is going to be a complicated relationship. She was also constantly in battles with my dad Mm. um, and with her own mother, who didn't live with us, but lived right across the street from us. So she was in our apartment all the time. And I could see the way relationships were triangulated. I would listen to the fighting and the crux of the arguments, and it was all about need and want and fulfillment of desire and what other people had that my mother didn't have and what my mother felt that she was entitled to. And it was terrifying. You know, it was really frightening. And I also knew that I was not what she expected me to be. At, at that point, what were you feeling she was lacking the most? Compassion, um, empathy, warmth. There was no doubt in my mind that she loved me. But she loved me within the limitations of her ability. She came to love from a place that was complicated herself. I mean, she had an awful relationship with her mom, who was uh, gay, actually. Her mother was gay in the 1930s, married my grandfather because people were beginning to talk. And she was in her 30s. And so there was a lot, there was this sort of trickle down of, lack of fulfillment and lack of happiness and lack of peace in their hearts. And that's the lens through which my mother sees the world. I'm only able to put words to that now, but at that time, all I knew was mom is unhappy. How can I keep her happy? What can I do? And Annie talks about being an emotional flight attendant. What can I get you? What can I do to make your ride easier and less bumpy. That's what I was trained to do until I got to the point where I said, enough, no. And that's around the 13? And that was around the, that was around the 13, right? That was around the time that I was 13. I was starting to spend more time out of the house with friends, trying to not get into the kind of trouble in the 70s that all my friends were getting into. You know, there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of you know stuff milling around our neighborhood at that time. I always felt very much like I was on the outside looking in, but I did not want to be in the house. I counted the days until I could leave and go away to school and go away to college and, you know, move as far away from her as I could get. What came first, your mother and father separating or you running for the hills? My parents separated when I was 15. Okay. I think metaphysically, I ran for the hills as soon as I knew I had to, to keep myself safe. I withdrew. I'd come home from school, go into my room, close the door, and I would write 
or I would play music. I've been a musician since I was four, serious musician since I was four. Don't really talk about it. I'm just sort of beginning to talk about it now. My mother had been a television singer in the 50s, and so she was the musician in the house, and I didn't want to compete with her, so I kept my music very, very quiet. But that's what I did. That was a way for me to run away. When my parents separated when I was 15 and divorced when I was 16, I immediately started thinking, college, where am I going to go? How far away can I get? I wanted to be out here. I wanted to be on the West Coast. I wanted to be in Colorado. And I wound up only going to college about four hours away from her. Yeah. Yeah. The book Motherland is about you having had built this life. Mm-hmm. It's one, right. You, I mean, spoiler alert, you fall in love. Right. <laughs> you just celebrated 20 years right. together and you build a community and life. And then you get the call that your mom needs help. And you're put in the position where you have to either decide, am I going to basically re-engage and go show up or not? Right. But... I want to stay kind of in the the period of your life where you are just starting to build something that is all your own. And what was that journey like? I feel like I am building something that is all my own right now. A lot of my life was predetermined in some way because I had a kid at 19. I can't move anywhere. And if I wanted 50% custody, I have to take jobs that aren't nine to five because I have to pick Jacks up. So now that Jax is getting older, I really feel like Oh, gosh, like even though I am geographically stuck, I hate using that word, but it's true. Right. I'm stuck here. Mm -hmm. If I want to be in my son's life half the time, I have to be where my son is, short of me and his mom negotiating some crazy, cool joint move, which will never happen. Uh, (laughs) There are worse places to be than this particular Way worse. That's not me complaining. Right, right, right. It is just a a reality. And now I am trying to build something that's all my own here. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'd love for you to talk about your rebuilding process where you've pretty much had to withdraw and create your own little space outside of your family. But I I had a dad who fell really short. Mm -hmm. I have a a mom who I think we would both do a lot of things over if we could do it again. Single mom, really her career demanded a lot of us. And what was your rebuilding process? Like when you get to, I'm sorry, was it? It's Connecticut, right? Connecticut, yeah. yeah. When when you run to Connecticut, What do you do? It was a crazy thing. The first thing that I would say is I waited a really long time. I told a story last night at Book Passage about the fact that when I graduated from college in Boston, I I wanted to stay there. I wanted to stay away. It was self-preservation. I wanted to build my own life. My dad and I were very, very close. And he understood, certainly better than anybody else did, really, how dramatically difficult and even a little bit oppressive or a lot of bit oppressive my mother could be. My mother tends to surround herself with people who want to take care of her. That's what NPDs do. You put people around that they're, they tend to be extremely seductive. They surround themselves with people who will give them the things that they need mm-hmm. and to fill that sort of um, narcissistic bucket. I wanted to stay away. My father wanted me to stay away. He wanted me to start my own life elsewhere, whether it was in writing, teaching. I didn't come to cooking until later, professionally, until later. But in the 1980s, there was very, very little work to be had in the writing world and in the publishing world in Boston. And so I came home to New York City. I lived with my mother for and my stepfather for two years, two of the longest years of my life, on a, on a pull-out sofa in her den. 
I had gone from having my own life in school. And I didn't do very well in college because it was the first time in my life that I had been away. So it was as though I had spent 18 years trying to save myself, finally got away, and then didn't know what to do with myself once I got there. And I think that that's probably pretty common for a lot of people who grow up in similar situations. But I came home. I lived with my mother and my stepfather for two years on her pull-out sofa. My role was to basically uh, be one of the people who filled her need bucket. My stepfather was a lovely guy, very kind to me, very kind to her, very patient. There was a lot of anger and rage and fury in the apartment. My mother and I did not really speak so civilly to each other for the two years that we lived there. That was the place that I discovered that wine <laughs> was one of the ways, this was in uh, the mid-1980s, was one of the, the ways that I could sort of soften the blows of the, of the emotional difficulty that I was having with her. And so I lived there for two years. I finally moved out after two years because my doctor actually said to me, if you stay in your mother's house, you're going to have a stroke by the time you're 25. Your blood pressure's through the roof and you need to leave. And I remember sitting in his office and he actually took out a prescription pad and he wrote me a prescription that said, find your own apartment <laughs> and handed me the prescription. And my mother and I still talk about it to this day. She's still uh, sort of resentful of that. But so I, you know, I moved out and moved a little further away every with every move in the city, a little further, a little further, a little further. And when my stepfather eventually passed in 1997, my mother began to treat me like a spouse. And she would show up in my office at my office. She would show up at my apartment unannounced. So. All of these things made it impossible for me to have a life of my own, of my own making, without her at the center. It was finally, I want to say, in the late 90s. I had been single for a very long time at that point. I had been dating on and off, but not, you know, when I was coming out, and that was complicated because coming out as a lesbian when your mother is this hyper-heterosexual glam queen. There's all sorts of complications surrounding that. And an old, old friend of mine said to me, you are not going to find love and you're not going to live your own life until you understand that you effectively have to break up with your mother. Yeah. She will never see the need for that because she wants you. She needs her bucket filled. That's what NPDs do. It's just everything to fill the bucket. So at that point, I was in my early, my very early 30s. I remember coming home from work one day and thinking, I'm tired of being alone and I'm tired of not knowing what my life is going to be and what my life is going to look like. I met uh, the woman who would become my wife shortly thereafter after a year of commuting back and forth on the weekends, I moved. It was a very dramatic change in my life to move from a city of 10 million people to a town of 3,500. But I had to save myself. The, and it was like everything converged. I didn't hit the delete key on my computer when I got the personal response on the AOL message board from Susan, you know, that, um, you know, that she wanted to meet. We met and 
we've been together ever since really our, our first meeting, which is kind of a remarkable thing. Since that time, I mean, that was 2000, there has always been the push-pull, my mother calling three times a day, five times a day, 10 times a day, 14 times in one day, thinking that, you know, that that's okay, that that's normal. And me having to be in a position to say, no, this isn't normal. This isn't okay. I don't have children. You have a son. You have a young son. I think that there's a point at which you kind of have to look at your kid and you're like, you know, I can keep you as safe as I can keep you for as long as I can keep you safe. And then at a certain point, you have to let that that child fly. And I felt as though the roles had been reversed for myself and my mom. I couldn't keep giving her what she needed in order to keep her safe, in order to keep our roles where they had always been. If I give her what she needs, she will love me. Wrong. She'll just need more and more and more. When I moved to Connecticut, it was effectively my being like, Mom, you've got to fly. You've got to live your own life. And I'll always love you. I hope you'll always love me. But I've got to go off and and live my life now because I don't want to turn around when I'm 60, 70 years old and still be in this position, still having the same conversation. To me, the greatest loss is a life unfulfilled. Yeah. Mine or anyone else's. How how do you start to process the, I guess, the guilt or the, the shame of leaving someone behind who you need to have boundaries with? That's a painful process in itself when you can't really be a part of her healing when you separate. She's got to process that on her own. Right. How do you do it? How'd you do it? With a lot of therapy. Yeah. I think that one of the hardest things for people who um, who have lived with NPDs in their lives are the issues of boundaries. I mean, boundaries are hard enough in any uh, kind of relationship. But when you are faced with someone who calls you 14 times a day and thinks it's normal and does it over and over and over again and conditions you to believe then it is normal, when you only hear from them 10 10 times a day, then you start to think that something's wrong. Drawing the lines, changing the nature of the boundaries, restructuring our boundaries. I remember, you know, my dad saying to me early on, and I'm, I'm one of the things that I'm really grateful for is the fact that although we lost him in 2002, he did know Susan for two years and they were they had a very close relationship. But he used to say to me, your mother is no longer the focus of your life. Susan is the focus of your life. And that's where your future is. And she is where you will drop your anchor and you'll go through your life with her and your mother's going to kick and scream. It is so ancient a story as to be Greek. You read Greek myths and littered with stories of the mother clinging to the kid and the kid's got to go off. This was extreme and I had an enormous amount of guilt surrounding the fact that I couldn't protect her. I couldn't give her the things that she needed. I couldn't keep her bucket filled without risking my own life and my own livelihood and my own heart. The guilt that goes along with that is tremendous, and that's self-generated. The flip side of that is the guilt that she 
I think probably wanted me to feel you're not taking care of me, you're not taking care of your mother, you're not doing the thing. I didn't raise you to be, you know, the, I'm 56 years old. She called three times while I was in the car on the way over here. And Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So do you ignore them? I often do. The decline button on the iPhone is often very helpful. But over the years, I've had to learn what is a real crisis and what is not. So I got a call the other day, we were out here, that she had become ill and had to go into the hospital. And she was there for 24 hours. I was ready to jump on the plane, fly home. And a dear friend of mine said, no, there are people there who are taking care of her. You don't know that it's not a situation where they're just observing her. And it was. that. That's And they sent her home and she was fine. She called and she will continue to do that. I have to know when to hit the delete button. And it's still hard. And I still get that kind of moment of, I want to save her. I want to rescue her. I said last night in my book signing that I have come to realize exactly the nature of her mental illness. And that understanding has allowed me to almost objectify the situation. So I know exactly what I can do and what I can't do, but I no longer blame her for the illnesses that she has, whereas I used to. The only thing that I can control is my response to her and to her illnesses. I could no sooner let her be endangered uh, than I could let a two-year-old run into oncoming traffic. I could never turn my back on her completely. It's just something I would not, I would not do. She's ill, and it's, it is a, it's a mental illness, and that's something that I always have to remember. Yeah, there was an interesting kind of question got brought up last night, which is where the moral obligation lies. Some people absolutely should not go back and help their parents who are their abusers, say. That's correct. And some people, that might be the right decision to make. And so obviously, because you wrote a book about this, people are asking you about it, and you've had time to to think about what went into your decision and how you would counsel people who might need to make the opposite decision. And and what would you say helped factor into your decision? And when when do you tell a friend or a reader who goes, I'm in this position, maybe you're not the right person to help your parent or your spouse or whoever I think that if the situation is truly abusive, a truly abusive situation, certainly, you know, people have come to me since the book has has come out and have said, I have a parent who is physically abusive to me and they're older now and they need me and I just, I can't, they are at the core of my trauma and I cannot bring myself to care for them. I understand that. And for me, that's complicated. For them, it's more black and white. I know people who who have left their families because of that kind of a situation. I, I think that barring that kind of a situation, and it is completely subjective, what one person can do for an older, ill parent is not always right for, it's not right for everybody. I do believe that we are hardwired to care for each other. I think that is the human condition. That's the thing that makes everything complicated. We are hardwired to care for each other. We're hardwired to treat each other with compassion and empathy. Most of us see a person in need, whether it's a young person or an older person, and we want to help them. I believe that in a in a situation with an older parent who is mentally ill, the ability to have as much knowledge about their illness as possible, 
to know what to expect and to be able to separate the personal emotional baggage, the history from the practical, these are the things that I need to do now in order to keep this person safe. I think that's the most important thing. One of the things that I tell people who talk to me about this is ask yourself the question, are they safe? Are they safe? Are they in a position now where they can hurt themselves or hurt someone else? And if the answer is no, then it's not an emergency. With seniors, it can become an emergency very quickly. It's something as mundane as putting a pot on the stove, walking away, taking a nap and falling asleep and burning the house down. I mean, we hear those stories all the time. We can keep them safe to the degree that we're able. Unless we move in with them and we're with them every single minute of every single day, we don't those are boundaries. You know, that's getting back to your question about boundaries. We cannot put our own lives and our own livelihoods on hold in order to be there 24-7. That said, there's a, a sliver, a tiny sliver of population in this country that has the means, financial means, practical means to have caregivers be with their parents as they as they get older. It's a it's a fraction of the population. Most of the people in this country are in the position of having to juggle. You know, I'll take care of my mom. You take care of the kids. You pick up the. You know, so many of my friends now have kids in college and older parents in assisted living, and they're running, going from this place to that place. And we're talking about 43 million Americans right now in the position of being inadvertent caregivers to uh, one or both of their senior parents, which is a tremendous number. That's just without all of the trauma. That's And we all have trauma. We all have difficult stories. My question is, how do we metabolize our pasts with our difficult parents in order to get through this veil that allows us to care for them in their later years and also allows us to care for ourselves. Because everybody sort of jokes around about the phrase self-care now, but self-care is hugely important, hugely. Without it, where, where will we be? Where would we be? It has been so hard to admit because I feel like I have a talent for holding space for people. Some people will call me just at the end of the rope, and I'm not a, I'm not a therapist, but I, I can listen to somebody say, I really don't want to be here anymore, and me not make it about myself or not internalize it and just be like, yeah, I know how that feels. Right. You know, I bet you do. It has been so hard for me recently to realize that there are relationships that I just can't handle that just leave me feeling in tatters. And saying no to those relationships who are people who I love so much is still such a hard thing to grasp. Yeah. It is the challenge at hand, I would say, really. And what is, what is the guilt that goes along with that for you? Well, it's, it's terrible because I want to be a part of people's healing. Like, I, I love when somebody calls me and I just say, well, I don't know, this thing worked for me. You could try it. And they say, wow, you know, that little thing got me, gave me a small reprieve. Yeah. To not be part of the healing process, I almost have what people would call as like FOMO. Right. Fear of missing out. Sure. Yeah. It's like fear of missing out on the miracle. Like right. I love to see healing. I yeah. love to see new addicts and alcoholics recover. I love to see people with trauma 
overcome or for their panic attacks to get smaller and smaller or their episodes to get smaller and smaller. I love to watch the healing process. I love to see self-sabotagers like myself self-sabotage less, less often. And so to not be a part of the process, it, A, it feels cold. I feel cold and heartless and selfish. It's just hard. At, at the end of the day, though, I am a clinically depressed person who ends up suicidal. Right. Like it's life-threatening. When I decide whether to be part of somebody's healing or not to be part of somebody's healing, I'm not making a life or death decision for them. They'll probably be okay either way. Yeah. They'll probably find a therapist or people. I can't save them anyway. Right. We can't save anyone else. I, right. But it is a life or death decision for me. Right. That's like, right. Am I going to end up potentially suicidal Right. from this? So it is the hardest thing. And I have to remember, just like with sobriety, I can't keep anyone sober. I don't have a magic bullet. Right. I can't say something that will keep you sober. All I can offer is to kind of be with you during the process. Yeah. It's the same with everything else. It's like, you know, I find it really interesting. I mean, I'm at the earliest, earliest days right now of sobriety, and it's a really interesting time. It's a really interesting experience, and I'm just beginning to talk about this publicly. And I find that people talk about it in, in sort of in hindsight. When I was early on, when I was in trouble, and when I was, you know, and I find that I, I want people to talk about it while it's unfolding. And maybe maybe that's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. I, I don't know. But I think that one of, you know, one of the things that has profoundly moved me in a way that almost really nothing else has is the concept of service and service to others who are struggling. As you say, you know, whether it's someone trying to come through the process of getting sober, someone who is struggling with uh, mental health issues um, and depression like you, I, I also suffer from pretty significant clinical depression and have been treated for it for you know a long time it can be terrifying in talking about service the question is always how much at what point do you have to step back and say i can only help as much as i can help with my mother i can only help her as much as i can help her coming to that realization that was the pivot point for me that was the point at which i was able to say okay, I'm always going to feel the guilt. I'm always going to feel the shame when she calls me and says, this is not how I raised you. I didn't raise you to turn your back on me. Well, I haven't turned my, you know, I haven't turned my back on her. And I know that. And she knows that. But how much is too much? When does it become an issue of having to save ourselves? And that's a question that I um, always ask where she's concerned and certainly where other people in my life are, are concerned. And it's something that I'm almost hypervigilant about. You have to be. You really have to be. It's an incredibly tough personal decision. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, I tell people who are new in recovery, it's like stand on top of a table and try to pull your buddy up on the table with you. Right. It's a lot harder for him or her to pull you down. Right. So especially in the early phases, like lean towards being a little selfish. Yeah. Like, you can't help anybody if you're not helping yourself and if you don't have a strong foundation. Do you partake in the beverage? Is that your... I partake in the beverage and as a, as a food writer, you learn early on how wonderful wine is and you actually get paid 
to drink wine and you get yeah. paid to drink good wine. The more you know about wine, the more you get paid. So it's it's an interesting thing. It's actually something I'm just starting to talk about now. There have been a lot of wonderful chefs like Andrew Zimmern comes to mind. He's a dear friend of mine. And Sean Brock, who have, well, Andrew, I think, just celebrated 28 years, who talk about issues of sobriety vis-a-vis the food community. Food and wine go hand in hand. There are not that many women who are talking about it. Yeah. And so that's something that I'm starting to talk about now. And I, I do write a lot about nurturing and sustenance at the table. When does that become excessive? At what point does that become excessive? Yeah. That's something that's been very sort of front and center in my life. You had wine. I had meth. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. what a what a wonderful journey you're embarking on just starting to try it out. It's a, it's going to be a mess. Let me tell you that. Right, right, right up here. Thanks, Sam. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, because it's such a strange. I think what it really comes down to is getting comfortable in our own skin. So you you take away your your main exit to your right. feelings. The, it's about not feeling your feelings. I really part right. of it is a, a big chunk of it, and so it comes out in all kinds of strange places. Yeah, it comes out in a, any way you can get a rush. Sex, food, gambling. You start to recognize this pattern in other places once you cut out what you're currently using. Yeah, yeah. And so even if you realize, oh, I'm not an I'm not an alcoholic. I'm, I was just drinking too heavy. You're going to learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. In the process, like I think it's I think it's a great journey to embark on. I really I got sober only thinking I needed a year. Really? Yeah, and that oh. would, that would kind of reset me and get me straight. And then it just, it just so happened that at the end of the year I wasn't done. Like, I was like, I want to learn more, and I still am learning. It hasn't been linear at all. Melissa, I am, I'm coming out of the one of the darkest periods in my eight years of sobriety. Wow, yeah. And it was brutal, and I'm trying to make sense of what happened. I haven't published a podcast in a month. That won't be, things will be different by the time this podcast gets published. Uh, the timeline mm-hmm. will be all weird, but yeah. at the time of this recording, and it's frustrating to go, I've been sober eight years. I've gone to so much therapy and doctors. How can I not be better yet? Yeah. And it's because the drugs and the, the alcohol is like a symptom of the problem. It just so happens to be a symptom that destroys my life. The fastest. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, in these early days, I've been like, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'll give it 90 days or I'll give it a year. And the thing that I keep coming back to over and over again is I'm significantly older than you are chronologically. And I keep thinking to myself, I don't want to live the rest of my life the way I've lived the first half of it. And a lot of it, I mean, there's just, so much pain. I mean, when I was in, in conversation last night with Anne and at Book Passage, and we were talking about the hole, the hole that's created when your mom is not there and you, you're constantly trying to fill it and you're constantly trying to cork it. And literally, and for me, what was the thing that I tried to fill it with? And that was, and it was food and wine. That also gave me a career. You know, a successful career as a food writer. The recalibration and the boundary redrawing and the understanding, it's fascinating. And I'm terrified as shit right now. I really am. But I'm looking forward to things being different and clear. I've described it as someone taking off my glasses and wiping them and then handing them back to me, cleaning them and handing them back to me. Yeah, I, th- I think it's great for, for healing, for <laughs> diagnosing, especially self-diagnosing. It's almost like an elimination diet. It's like you're trying to figure out 
what's going on. And but the hardest part is you take away drugs or alcohol or for me lately, it's like binge eating or like emotional regulation with like food and and you take away those things. All of a sudden you have to feel your feelings. That's frightening. Like yeah, that's all. It is. It is. Yeah. It's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. lot. Especially yeah. if you're sensitive, like I, I get a feel that we're kind of kindred spirits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I we're do both too. Yeah. very sensitive people. Right. Yeah. To have a parent that leaves you wanting, this is just something I keep coming to because it's something I'm working on. I'm curious on your take. When you have a parent that leaves you wanting, or in, in my case, I, I had two. I love my mom. So grateful for her. She did the best she could under the circumstances, but there's like, I really wish there was more right. in a sense. And so I'm left with this, I guess, project chapter of learning how to supplement by being a good parent to myself. Mm -hmm. Like when I talk to myself, it's not the same as when I talk to Jax. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as when I talk to somebody who's just newly getting sober. It's like really harsh and awful and trying to learn how to be the dad I never had to myself mm -hmm. and trying to be um, the mothering spirit I want these days to myself, especially because my mom's newly married, you know, <laughs> I'm 30 years old, I'm out of the house and she's a good mom. So this, I think this is something that just a lot of people have to do. Even if you had quote unquote good parents, you have yeah. to fill in some of the spaces. What's your practice for yourself in terms of a lot of your messages about nurturing, about caretaking? What is the, the practice for yourself in being that mother energy, that mother spirit to yourself? I think when listening to you, really listening to what you were just saying, I don't have children. I adore children. And one of my greatest uh, regrets is not having children. And someone said to me not long ago, I was I was with younger cousins and little cousins. And someone said to me, you know, oh, you're so kind to them and you're so gentle to them and funny and you, you're physically affectionate with them. And you're just not that way with yourself. I think that it's so easy to fall into, to slide down the very slippery slope of self-loathing. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And certainly social media does not help. We look at images of people who are quote unquote successful and in their images, that's, that's, they're not necessarily real. And I, I think that for me, the challenge, the biggest challenge for myself is to not slip down the slope of self-loathing and to not be so relentlessly hard on myself. I try in the best of situations, things are all sort of, if everything's sort of moving in the right direction emotionally and I'm treating my body well physically and I'm eating right and I'm moving my body and I'm exercising and I'm doing hydrating and doing all the things, hydrating with the right things, doing all the things that I'm that I should that I should be doing. I think that all sort of fall into the the funnel of mothering myself, caring for myself, caring for my mind and my heart and and knowing when something is too much, when something is dangerous, learning to listen to my own heart and my gut instinct. I, I don't know if this is a, a common thing with people who experience issues of addiction, but I think some of us have very, very strong gut feelings, gut sensibilities about. So Susan always laughs and says, if you don't listen, if you tell me that a situation is going to be this way and then you don't listen to it and you don't heed your own warning, I know something's wrong. So doing all of those things, 
I think is I think is really really important. The hardest thing for me is when I get into a place of self-loathing, when my mother has been at me and you know, you're this and you're and my mother can actually often slips into uh, verbal abuse which as she has gotten older and there's a tiny bit of uh, dementia going on, she'll go down the verbal abuse road even more. And and that happens with a lot of people who get older. Mm-hmm. And part of me knows that it's her illness. A big part of me knows that that's her illness. And then the other part of me absorbs that and that reinforces the self-loathing that I, that I already carry in my heart. So treating my body uh, physically as, you know, as best I can, moving my body, doing all the things that I need to do to care for my heart. And even if that means keeping certain people at bay, you can only help people when you have the tools to do it. And when I get into a bad place, those I can't help myself. If I can't help myself, I can't help. I can't help anyone else. Self-care, I do not come naturally to it. I just don't come naturally to it. How do you talk and write about this while your mom's still alive? I was That's... I was listening to I think the author of Fight Club, the book. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. said the great, even though he liked his parents, the greatest gift was when his parents passed away. Yeah, because you could yeah. finally just yeah, right, right. And there's as an expressive, as a storyteller, like me as a storyteller, it's strange waters, especially because yeah. my mom is also a writer. Sure, sure. But how have you navigated that? Yeah. So this is my third book, and. My first, and I've always written about my family and my my both parents. And about three years ago, I was writing a year long column for the Washington Post called "Feeding My Mother," and I had done a TED talk about caring, trying to feed someone, trying to feed a senior citizen who was averse to it, who would not be fed, and issues of bringing senior citizens into the uh, national food conversation because they're not there, right? So if you pick up a copy of any glossy food magazine, I will not name names, and you flip through it, there are no seen, there are no older people at the table. There are all these gorgeous, beautiful, lovely people. If you go onto Instagram, same thing, food pages on Instagram. So they are absent. They're invisible. So I did this TED Talk, and then I wrote a year-long column for the Washington Post called Feeding My Mother. And it was all about that thing. How do you feed a, personally, how would I feed a body dysmorphic, food-hating senior citizen as she gets older to make sure that she is still able to do the things that she loves to do and that give meaning to her life. She's an avid walker and protein intake is very important as people get older. And by the time the year was over, I realized that I had a column, a, a year's worth of essays about less the practical aspects of feeding her and more about how do you nurture and sustain someone who will not be nurtured or sustained, and who was supposed to nurture and sustain me and didn't. That was the jumping off point for Motherland. She knew I was writing the column for the Washington Post. Like any good person with narcissistic personality disorder, she believes that all publicity is good publicity. The columns were very kind. There was no acrimony in them at all. There was really very, very much like no acrimony in the book, really. So she knew that I was writing Motherland. The reason it was important to me to write the book while my mother was still alive was because I wanted to unravel our relationship in real time. 
and I wanted to find a place. I wanted to find a possible path to healing while we were both still here and not write about us from a point of conjecture. Did she think this? Did she think this? There were times that I went to her apartment and I said, Mom, I'm going to turn on the voice recorder on my iPhone and I just want to ask you some questions. Is that okay? And she was blessedly fine with that. She thought, I think, that it was going to be her biography, that it was just going to be 356 pages of Rita. I think she was very surprised to learn when she read it, which she has done, that was not the case, that it was really about us. The greatest compliment that she was able to give me, she did. And it was about it was about a week or so after she finished reading it. And she said, you know, you got it 99% right. I didn't even ask what the 1% was. I just didn't do I, I didn't love do, it. I just didn't do that. It was just really important for me to try and understand her and us while we were both still here. And I was lucky enough and blessed enough that she was okay with that. Wow. Do you think you think your writing may change a bit when she's no longer with us? Yes. Yeah, you think it might have some more extra? Yes. Yeah, me too. That's thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I think that there are certain things that are alluded to in the book that I I cannot and write will not write about while she's still here that are just not fair and would not be okay for me to talk about until because that's just it just wouldn't feel right. Yeah. I, same not only with my mom, but also with my son's mom. I would love to open up a dialogue about what happened with me and her. I feel like my son would get caught in the crossfire yeah, of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And same, same with my mom, where it's like my mom has a career and I don't want to mess with her at all, right. especially considering that she stepped up in, in a lot of ways. I'm so grateful for her. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and what she did do for me and how she did raise me. This is the way I like to end the program. I, I tweak the prompt a little bit, case by case basis. But if I were to hand you my phone right now, and on the other end was thirteen-year-old Alyssa, who's just starting to find her own identity, but was also going to be in that house with her mom and the whole dynamic for years to come. What is the message you would want to tell her? So just to kind of keep her going until she becomes the woman that you've become today. Very good question. I would tell her you are loved, even though you don't feel it. You will live, even though you aren't sure you will. Maybe don't fall so much in love with the wine. (laughs) 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 Yeah, maybe not so much that third part. That was a little bit early, but yeah, no. You're loved and you will live. Because there were times where I didn't think I would. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Sam. And congratulations, not only on this book, which is getting great critical reviews. Thank you. I think is well-deserved. Thank you. Also on opening up about the music and the recovery thing. I think those are two exciting new avenues for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an interesting time. So, But I'm feeling very blessed and um, lucky. So. Can't wait for the album to drop. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sam. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the How To Human podcast. If you liked it, share it with a friend, share it with somebody who you think will enjoy this episode. And I would love if you could write a review on iTunes. Also, if you would like to join our amazing community, you can go to patreon.com slash hellohuman or patreon.com slash howtohuman. They both go to the same place. And become a patron and join our events. We're doing book clubs. We're doing live events. 
And it's also a great way to support a show that you seem to enjoy since you're at the end. Thanks and have a good day.